You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we continue to revisit some of my favorite podcasts from the past in this Millennial Investing Rewind. If you've missed our previous Rewind episodes, we've started to reshare some older episodes that are my favorites for a few reasons. One, we get a bunch of new listeners each week, so the new listeners may not have heard this episode before. Two, even if you've been listening for a while, you may have missed this episode when it originally came out. Or three, even if you've heard it before, it can be a great episode to learn from again. If you've already heard this episode or you're not interested in hearing it, feel free to just skip it. There's no harm in that, and you could pick up with our new episodes next week. Also, if you've been listening for a while, you know about the fee for this show. And if you're new, I want to let you know that we do have a fee for listening to the Millennial Investing and Real Estate 101 podcasts. It's not a monetary fee. I don't want you guys to have to pay me anything to listen to the show. I'm actually happy and proud to be able to bring this to you guys for free and provide all of this content for free. But what we ask for the fee is for you to share this show with one friend. For every episode that you like the show, just share it with one friend. I'd love it if you shared this across social media and told hundreds of people, but you don't have to do that. You can satisfy the fee by just sharing every episode that you like with one person. If an episode makes you think of something in a different way or teaches you something new, just share that episode with a friend. And we've made it easy for you to do that by creating what is called starter packs. So what we've done to make it easy for you guys to pay the fee is created these things called starter packs. We've basically created five or six categories that all of these different episodes could fit into from beginner stock market investing to personal finance and a bunch of other different categories. And I've listed out my four to six favorite episodes for that category. So if you want to share the show with somebody, you can tell them to check out the starter packs and they can pick which category and which episodes they want to check out. Or even if you're just looking to find some episodes in a certain category, you could check out those starter packs as well. You can find those by going to theinvestorspodcast.com slash M-I starter packs. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash MI starter packs. And if you want to connect with me directly, the best place to find me is on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram. My username on both is the Robert Leonard. That's the Robert Leonard. T-H-E-R-O-B-E-R-T-L-E-O-N-A-R-D. All right, guys, that's all I had for you for this new intro. Everything going forward is going to be from the original show. Hope you guys enjoy it. On today's show, I sit down with Ben Felix to discuss some common sense investing ideas, his thoughts on diversification, and the 5% rule. Ben Felix is the host of Common Sense Investing, a YouTube channel that discusses financial decision making, a podcast host, and he is also a portfolio manager at PWL Capital Inc. He holds the CFA and CFP designations as well as earned an MBA degree. Ben shares a wealth of knowledge throughout this episode. So without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Ben Felix. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Ben Felix. 
Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me on. Let's start the show by talking about your background and who you are. For those who may not know, tell us a bit about yourself. I'm a portfolio manager with a firm in Canada called PWL Capital, a wealth management firm. The team that I'm on here, we manage a little over a billion dollars in assets. That's kind of my day job, but you probably wouldn't know who it was if that's all I did. I've also got a YouTube channel called Common Sense Investing. That's been kind of a fun side project that's picked up a little bit over the last, I guess, year or so. That takes up a bit of my time now as well. And in terms of my background, I, I studied engineering originally, went into finance by doing an MBA program, did the CFA program, CFP, and another one called the CIM that's specific to Canada. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my professional background anyway. I could keep talking, but I played basketball in university. I was in, uh, in, in the States at Northeastern in Boston for my mechanical engineering undergrad. Oh, that's too funny. I live in the Boston area. Where I work is we source all of our co-ops from Northeastern. So Yeah, it's a great co-op school. Yes, cool. Yep. Very cool. Awesome. Well, we'll dive into your YouTube and your side hustle and things of that nature. But before we do, I know the audience is big into stock investing. So let's talk about your day-to-day responsibilities as a portfolio manager. What does that look like? I mean... When you talk about people being interested in stock investing, what I do as a portfolio manager is super not interesting from that perspective. <laughs> and the reason is that PWL, or our investment philosophy is that you cannot beat the market. So all of the security analysis that the CFA program teaches, we're not doing that. We build portfolios using low-cost index funds for our clients. And we focus a lot more on the wealth management and financial planning side. We consider investing to be one of the many inputs, but We've got model portfolios that we've put a lot of time into building, but they're built. So we're not spending a whole lot of time researching specific securities or anything like that. But in terms of the breakdown of my time, a good chunk of it is spent meeting with clients, keeping in mind that we're not a a fund company. We're not just managing assets. We're doing wealth management, which is a lot more involved, I think, at at the client level. I spend a fair amount of time doing research, but again, it's not research on stocks. It's research on financial planning and minimizing tax and efficient retirement drawdown and and things like that. So that's clients research. And I know we're going to talk about YouTube as a side hustle, but it's actually not. So I do spend a a chunk of my time at my job writing content for my YouTube channel as well. That's interesting. So you mentioned you have an MBA, you're a CFA, CFP, and the CIM, and you're a successful portfolio manager. So what made you want to start a YouTube channel? Well, so my firm in Canada, you got to understand in Canada, our financial services landscape is really dominated by five big banks. And we know that from a marketing perspective, we cannot differentiate ourselves. That's not the right description. We can't compete on marketing spend with these big banks that we have, that we have here. And so our strategy has always been content, which I think as a firm, we've been pretty good at for quite a long time. And a few years ago, based on the data on, on video consumption, we decided that it made sense to try and get into video as part of our overall content strategy. So we, we, we did that. And that's really how my channel started. It was a decision at the corporate level for the firm that I work for to pursue video and just happened by luck or whatever you want to call it that uh, my channel has done fairly well. And it's kind of become a thing of its own now. So you don't consider it a side hustle? I mean, it's tricky. It blurs the lines. It really blurs the lines because I mentioned that I spend some time at work working on, on that project, but the majority of the time that, that goes into the YouTube channel is, is on usually on the weekend, which is kind of tough because I have three young kids and a wife who also demand my time. So it's not completely a side hustle because it's fully supported by my work, 
but most of the time is, is my own time. So is it a side hustle or not? I don't know how to answer the question. Kind of. Would you have it if your corporate job were to change? Would you continue it now? Yeah. I, I mean, it's at a point where I think there, it's got quite a bit of momentum. And as a standalone business now, if I stop putting anything into it, it's, you know, it's not huge. I think I've got just under 100,000 subscribers. So it's producing some not insignificant revenue, nothing that I could live off of and support my family off of. But yeah, would, would I keep it going for sure? Part of the tricky thing is I don't do all of the animations and things like that. So there's a cost to that. And if I factor that in plus my time, the channel is losing money. So it's not a great business in that sense. But like I said, I could stop making new content and it would still do something as a business. But yeah, it, separate from my corporate job, I would definitely continue with, uh, with the YouTube channel. A lot of people are wondering who can create those animations for them. So are you just outsourcing them to a freelancer or is it something that your corporate job is handling? The corporate job handles it. I don't do any of that coordination myself, but we do have a video editor and an animator. So they're two separate contractors. I wish I could do that myself, but I guess I wouldn't have time to do that even if I had the skills. That's very cool that your corporate job allows you to be able to do something that a lot of people would consider a side hustle and even help you support that with the different animations and different freelance opportunities that they provide you. So that's really, really cool. I think from the perspective of the company, it's been really powerful in terms of reaching people that might be interested in becoming clients of our wealth management service, but also communicating ideas and what we're thinking about and how we're thinking about things to our clients. That's been one of the most impactful things from our perspective is the feedback that we get from clients of our firm just saying how much they appreciate the content. Or even just whenever we meet with people, they've already got so much context for how we're thinking about things because they've been keeping up to date with, uh, with the YouTube videos. So you found it to be a good lead generator? It's been really, really good. And it's when, I mean, you, you, you would find the same kind of thing with, uh, with and we do a, a podcast too, but it's like the, the comment that I get from people who've reached out based on watching the videos or listening to the, the podcast is that, you know, they feel like they already know me and they already know exactly how we're thinking about all these different financial planning and investing issues. So it's very different from, you know, a billboard where you might get someone curious about the fact that you exist. <laughs> Uh, then you've got to sell them on your services. If, if somebody contacts us based on watching the YouTube videos or listening to the podcast, there's no real sales process. It's like they've contacted us because they know exactly what we do and they know that they want that. So I guess it, it is good for generating leads, but it's good for generating extremely qualified leads. And so for someone listening who may not be in the exact position you are where it provides leads for their day job, I wanted to talk about that because if they have maybe the YouTube channel isn't making a ton of money, but maybe it's providing leads for something else that they're doing. Maybe they have a book, maybe they have a course, maybe they have consulting services, or just maybe they have something else that they're selling on the side. And maybe they need to start a YouTube channel just to get that content out there to add as a sales funnel or a, a lead generation tool for them for whatever they're looking to do outside of YouTube. I have a, a friend in my, a buddy of mine, and, and he, he also has a YouTube channel. He's started it more recently. It's not 10,000 subscribers kind of thing, but he's in music production. And we were just chatting about YouTube and he said, he's not making any money with, with 10,000 subscribers. You're not making much of anything. But he said that the lead generation for his music production has been massive. He's getting clients from that that are much more meaningful to him in terms of revenue. So yeah, I think if you can do video well, it can be extremely powerful. And like I said before, when you've got people contacting you and they feel like they already know you, that's extremely powerful if you're looking to generate business. When you're creating these courses, are you providing a sales pitch in the video or is it just more of an organic thing? Just by listening to your content, watching your videos, they 
kind of go down the funnel, if you will, and they end up finding what else you're doing and it leads that way? Or are you providing pitches in the video? Yeah, no, there's never a pitch in the video. I think occasionally I'll say, this is how we're doing, this is how I do this at my firm, very occasionally. But most of the time, I don't even mention, I say at the beginning of the videos that I'm a portfolio manager with PWL Capital, but for the most part, I barely talk about what I do or our services or anything like that. So how do you balance your career as well as quote unquote side hustle? It's not necessarily a side hustle like we've talked about, but you said you work on it on the weekends. You have kids and a family. So how are you balancing this dynamic? And I think you're, you're somewhat fortunate that you're able to do the YouTube channel in combination with your day job. But for someone who isn't, how are they able to balance these two dynamics and work on them both at the same time and make them both high quality? It's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I'm, it's, it's no joke doing, having my job. Yes, I can, I can work on the YouTube channel and the podcast at work, but I'm also really busy at, at work with clients and research. Like we've talked about, I do most of this on, on the weekend. So maybe from that perspective, it's not that much different from having a, a true side hustle. But it's, <laughs> I mean, it's called a hustle for a reason, I guess. I, I don't use that word much to describe, to describe what I'm doing, but it's a commitment. And I mean, there are definitely times on the weekend where I don't feel like, or in the evening, where I don't feel like doing stuff or, or I'm not in the mood to really think deeply about something, but to kind of have to do it. I mean, you get it with a podcast too. Like These things don't stop. And especially if you wanted to do well, and if you want to communicate well with an audience and build a good audience and a good community, it's got to be consistent. But consistency is really, really hard. Yeah. So I don't know. If, if, if someone wants to have a side hustle, it's, it's, you've got to understand that it's a commitment. I think in terms of content, you've got to understand that, it's, that consistency is, is huge. Quality is also really important. And that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to do this stuff. If I was doing YouTube videos where I just got in front of the camera and talked about whatever, that would be easy. <laughs> but I spend, you know, I don't know how many hours, but many writing each, each video. And that's why I only do one every, every two weeks. But yeah, it's, it's a commitment and it's hard, but I guess that's why it pays off. And I don't know about you, but you're probably a numbers guy. You were an engineer, finance, just like me. I'm in accounting, finance. That's my type of thing. I'm not really super creative. So I kind of underestimated the level of effort that it was going to take to do something like this. It is a very creative project. And you mentioned the podcast. And when I first started, I didn't realize how hard it was to consistently every single week put out a podcast, but not just any podcast. It has to be high quality with great guests. And it's something you have to do every single week. And consistency in the high quality is is what's key. So it's extremely difficult. And it just, like you said, it just takes time, hard work, and commitment, really. Is yeah. there anything that you're doing with your channel to try and make it stand out? It seems there are a lot of finance and investing related channels. So are you really focused on trying to make it stand out or are you just trying to put out the best content possible? When I started, and well, if you go look at my old videos there, they're, they're a lot, I think, worse than the, than the newer ones. I think I've gotten a lot better in front of the, in front of the camera. But when I started, it was, I, was, I was really trying to appeal to an audience that was looking for... Now, I don't like necessarily using the word evidence-based when it comes to financial markets and investing because it's hard to refer to that as a, as a science. It's a social science, if anything. But I wanted to take an approach that was much more data-driven and had peer-reviewed academic research backing up the things that I, was, that I was saying. Because I agree, there are tons of channels, financial channels and investing channels on, on YouTube and podcasts, just the same, where you've got people talking about stuff based on their opinions or based on other people's opinions. That's easy to find and it's also relatively easy to, to do. But the way that my firm thinks about things and the way that I've always thought about things personally as well is that I really feel like I need to have, I need to be able to back up anything that I'm saying. Like, okay, why do you think that? Why is that true? 
And I need to be able to go back to the root and say, well, it's true because of this. And that might be data, it might be theory, but either way. So that was the basis of the channel from the beginning, is to communicate that type of information. And that's what I'm continuing to do, and that's what I plan to continue doing. But as far as I know, there aren't a whole lot of other channels that are doing things the same way. So I, I guess that ends up being the differentiator. That wasn't necessarily the plan from the beginning, but as it's turned out, that's been what differentiates my channel from the many others that are out there. Your channel is called Common Sense Investing. What does that mean? What is common sense investing? The way that I'm thinking about it and the way that I try and communicate what I think is smart investing through, through the YouTube videos is that you can't consistently beat the market. Trying to do so is probably going to make you worse off as opposed to better off. And therefore, I mean, this is obviously an oversimplification, but therefore it makes sense for most people to invest in low-cost index funds. Now, I talk about a lot more than investing on the YouTube channel. Like I talk about different financial decisions and different financial products and concepts. But in broad general terms, what I'm telling people is that capturing the returns of the market is probably the smartest thing to do. So what is common sense investing? I would summarize it very broadly as using low-cost index funds. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. You have a video that asks the question, are index funds over diversified? 
Modern portfolio theory would tell us that that more diversification is always good. Can you describe why an investor may not want more diversification and in what circumstances? I thought a lot about this. I don't know, probably three months ago. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And there's a firm that makes indexes and ETFs in, in the States called Alpha Architect. Their CEO, I think, his name's Wes Gray. He graduated from the University of Chicago, which is where Eugene Fama, the guy that sort of coined the term market efficiency, which is what makes, if markets are efficient, index investing makes sense. So anyway, Wes Gray studied under Eugene Fama, and he's got this firm now called Alpha Architect. And their whole, the whole basis of their product is optimizing for concentration in the right types of stocks. So I spent a lot of time talking to Wes about this and a lot of time thinking about it on my own. But the reason that you would not want to diversify, that you would want to be concentrated in a portfolio, is that when you diversify, you lose exposure to characteristics. As an example, if you want to be a value investor, if you invest in a thousand value stocks, you won't have extreme value exposure. But if you instead invest in the, in the 50 cheapest stocks that exist in the market, you'll have deep value exposure. So that's two different portfolios. One's much more concentrated, one's much more diversified. But you could argue, and, and you should argue, that the more concentrated portfolio has a higher expected return. So you can be more diversified and you'll have a lower expected return, in, in my example, or you can be more concentrated and have a higher expected return. The other big difference between those two examples, though, is in the concentrated portfolio, you're also going to have more company-specific risk or more idiosyncratic risk, unpriced risk, random risk, another way of describing it. So another way of thinking about that is that in the more diversified portfolio, you've got a more reliable outcome. So now we've got these trade-offs where in the diversified portfolio that's say like an index fund, you've got a reliable outcome. You're probably going to get something fairly close to what you expect on average. Whereas in the more concentrated portfolio, you've got a higher expected average return, but you're also going to have more random error around that expectation in the outcome that, that, you, that you get. Now, the next step in that thinking is, okay, well, if you want the higher expected return, theoretically, the, the most sound approach would be to take the diversified portfolio and use leverage to get your expected return where you want it to be. Now, this is one of the things that I talked to Wes Gray a lot about, and, and he basically says leverage is messy and painful, which is true. So to answer your question, and I know this is a long way of answering it, but if you want to have higher expected returns, but don't want to use leverage, that's a much cleaner way of explaining this in my, <laughs> my rambling just now. If you want higher expected returns and don't want to use leverage, then having a more concentrated portfolio is another way to approach higher expected returns. So who wouldn't want to run that concentrated portfolio? Because I'm sure that's not great for everyone. Well, you get a couple things. You get the idiosyncratic risk that I mentioned, where yes, you've got higher expected returns on average, but you've also got a much higher expected dispersion of outcomes. So on average, keeping in mind that people don't get the average return, people get one outcome. On average, you've got a higher expected return, but you will probably get something much higher or much lower than the average expected return. And that can be scary. And it can even be challenging from a financial planning perspective. If you've got a wide dispersion of outcomes, planning around that can be really hard. But the other piece, and, and this is probably speaks to your question better, you're going to have more volatility. If you take the 50 cheapest stocks in the market, that thing's going to be crazy volatile. And it's not just going to be volatile, it's going to have a ton of tracking error. So if value stocks are down, the 50 cheapest value stocks are probably going to be down more. And so now we have volatility, which hurts anybody. But we've also got tracking error where the market might be down a bit while your portfolio is down a ton, or the market might even be up and your portfolio is down a ton. So anybody that can't deal with that type of pain or that doesn't want to have the, the potential for idiosyncratic risk to affect, affect their outcome, those people would not want to invest in a concentrated portfolio. And so that type of concentrated portfolio probably isn't good for someone that's closer to retirement, but someone 
who's listening to the show that's a millennial investor that's young, early 20s, early 30s, who has a long time and can weather that volatility, that might be a good type of portfolio for them, You know, assuming that risk matches their risk profile, their personality, and they're able to weather those swings in the market up and down. But assuming that's the case, then the optimal portfolio for them is probably the concentrated portfolio. Yeah. I mean, I don't generally advocate for concentrated portfolio just because you do get that unpriced risk. The volatility is less of a concern. I think the, the other thing that we've I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently, and it stemmed off of this concentration versus diversification discussion, but the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is, is leverage. And again, like leverage is risky, genuinely. Like You can lose all of your money as a leverage investor. is volatile, and it can be scary. So again, the theoretically sound and probably more reliable approach for a young investor wanting higher expected returns is to use leverage. I've got a YouTube video on that if people want to watch it called Investing with Leverage, very creative title. But yeah, so if, if we're thinking about, okay, we've got a young investor with a super high risk tolerance, what's the best way for them to get higher expected returns? There are a lot of trade-offs, but it's not an easy decision between, do you have a more concentrated portfolio or do you use leverage? I don't think that the, the answer between those two choices is obvious. And so you gave two options there. Why is, or why isn't picking individual stocks a third option? And why isn't that a good choice for a millennial investor? Well, when we start talking about picking individual stocks, that idiosyncratic risk component that I keep bringing up, it, it gets bigger and it potentially gets even bigger than the overall expected return of the portfolio. If we're picking instead of the 50 highest expected returning stocks, if instead we're picking the three or the five highest expected returning stocks, well, I guess it depends how you're defining highest expected returning too, but you're going to have a very wide dispersion of outcomes. Which might not be a bad thing. Like, I'm not, it's not all, you're not always going to lose. You might win, but you're going to have a wide dispersion of outcomes where you're going to get a potentially very positive or potentially very negative outcome. I mean, I guess you could get an average outcome too, but the potential dispersion is a lot, is a lot wider. One of the big issues with individual stocks is that we know empirically that most of the market's return, all of the market's return in excess of T bills comes from a relatively small subset of stocks. There's a paper that looked at US stocks from 1926 to 2015. And of the 26,000 stocks that appeared, they use the CRISP database, the the Center for Research and Security Prices, 26,000 stocks appeared in that database for the full time period from 1926 to 2015. And 1,000 of those 26,000 stocks explained all of the market's return in excess of T-bills. It's it's really like finding a needle in a haystack to find those companies that do end up beating the market. So another way to think about that is that if, if you are picking stocks, your chances of underperforming statistically, not including things like being a skilled manager, which is a whole other conversation, but statistically picking stocks, you're much more likely to pick a loser than you are to pick a winner. And that also speaks to the concept of idiosyncratic risk, where if you're not diversified, the chances of missing out on the stocks that do explain the market's returns are much higher. You've also talked about avoiding index funds. Why would an investor listening to the show today want to avoid index funds? Well, the title of that video is maybe misleading because in it, I talk about, <laughs> I talk about the reasons that someone might give you to avoid index funds. And then I talk about why those reasons don't make any sense. But the, the common ones that I hear from people who say that index funds are a bad investment are that index funds are risky. And the line of thinking there usually goes that, well, if the market drops, the index fund is going to drop the same amount as the market, which is true. But for that to be a bad thing, we have to make the assumption that there's some alternative that's better. What could that better alternative be? Maybe you can pick the right stocks and aren't going to drop with the market. But for the similar reasons that I was just talking about, that's pretty unlikely. Maybe you can have an active fund manager that's going to be able to protect the downside when the market drops. Again, when we look at the data on actively managed funds in bear markets, they don't do better. 
than index funds. They drop just, just as much or they miss out on the recovery and end up doing worse overall. So that, that's one of the big ones. One of the other ones maybe speaks to what we were just talking about with picking stocks. With index funds, you get no control over your holdings. So you're getting all these bad stocks and all these good stocks or good companies, bad companies and good companies. But I, I think that the, the flaw in the thinking there, and this, this comes right back to the, the foundational theories of asset pricing, is that there's a big difference between a good company and a stock that's going to have positive returns. Now, if the market's efficient, then information is included in prices. And if that's true, then stock returns are going to be based on new information as new information develops. So the, the idea that buying an index fund gives you, gives you exposure to all of these bad companies, that might be true. But the tricky thing is that bad companies can end up having really good stock returns. In the video that you mentioned, I had an example of from 2010 to 2017, Google, Apple, and Amazon, and Netflix all had crazy returns. Like Everybody knows that. But over that same time period, do you know which company outperformed all of them? Domino's Pizza, which is crazy. Like You wouldn't necessarily expect that. But it speaks to that that idea that, well, it's kind of what I was talking about picking stocks. You can't pick the good stocks. And even if you say that a stock is bad or a company is bad or, or that it's not a, a strong, fundamentally strong company, that doesn't mean that it's not going to have good future stock returns. Anyway, yeah. So the, why would people want to avoid index funds? I don't know. If they, if they want a really concentrated portfolio, maybe. But even then, there are some index funds like Alpha Architect that I mentioned that do give you a concentrated portfolio. If you want control over your holdings, I get that. But that's, that's a bias, in my opinion. That's an illusion of control. You, you cannot control your outcome with, with stocks. And the idea that you're losing control by buying an index fund, again, I think that's, that's flawed thinking. You can't control your outcome regardless. The best thing that you can do for the reliability of your outcome is diversify. I believe one of those other companies that outperformed those three major companies that you mentioned is Monster Monster Beverages, similar to Domino's Pizza. I think those are maybe two of the only companies that did it over that time. And to your point, I mean, very few people guessed that or had the intuition or thesis behind that. And not only did they have the thesis right, but also the wherewithal to hold that from you know the time period where it was undervalued to today in order to capture all of those gains, right? Just getting the thesis right is one small piece of it and then having the fortitude to be able to hold it from then to now through all of the market swings and volatility, that's a whole nother piece of it. And also, I mean, you talk about how just because the fundamentals aren't there for a business, either good or bad, that doesn't mean the stock is going to follow. And that's so true. I mean, good business results usually lead to a stock price following that, but it doesn't always, right? I mean, we can look at Tesla as an example. The fundamentals, a lot of people will argue that, that they're horrible. Others love it and the stock does what it wants to do. And I mean, there's no real underlying fundamental data that shows why the company is doing what it's doing. It's more irrational. At least I would argue that. Yeah. I mean, you've got you to recognize when you're buying a stock, you're buying expected future earnings discounted at some discount rate. And so if you're buying a company that other people think is, or that everybody thinks is bad, maybe it, it really is a bad company. It means that you're probably paying a low price for it. It means that the discount rate's probably high, even if the expected future cash flows are bad. If you can buy future cash flows at a really, really high discount rate, you're paying very little for the future cash flows, that could give you great investment returns. I guess that kind of speaks to the idea of having a concentrated portfolio of the, of the stocks with the highest discount rates, the highest expected returns at the lowest prices, however you want to say it. We've talked a bit about the efficient market hypothesis. You and I both studied finance. We both have MBAs in finance. So we've spent years studying this material. But for someone listening to the show who didn't study that or just doesn't have a background in finance, explain to us what the efficient market hypothesis is. 
So in very simple terms, the way that Eugene Fama defined it when he wrote a, the, the paper on it in, in uh, 1970, he said a market, an efficient market is a market in which prices always fully reflect available information. Now, Fama also says in the same paper, I think, or maybe in a later one, probably the same paper, that the market cannot be perfectly efficient. That's one of the things that I think people get wrong about thinking about market efficiency. Market efficiency is a model for reality, but it's not reality, and you shouldn't expect it to be. And, and nobody's saying that it, that it is. The market cannot be perfectly efficient because of frictions and because of the, the, uh, the Grossman-Stiglitz paradox concept, where if the market were perfectly efficient, then everybody would index and the market would cease to be efficient. It cannot be perfectly efficient. And if it was, it couldn't, it couldn't stay that way for, for very long. Market efficient just, efficiency just means that information is in prices. And if information is in prices, most of the time doesn't have to be perfectly efficient, but as long as information is in prices most of the time, to the extent where prices are usually right, it's really, really hard to beat the market. And the reason it's hard to beat the market if prices contain accurate information is that prices will change based on new information. And so to continuously beat the market, consistently beat the market, you have to either be willing to take more risk, which we've talked about with the idea of concentrating in the, in the cheapest securities, or you have to be able to predict new information consistently. And that's been proven pretty consistently to be really hard to do. You think about how do, how, do, how do we know the market is efficient? Well, we don't. But why do we think that it might be? Or why do we think market efficiency is a pretty good model? Well, how do you test market efficiency? You'd expect stock prices to be mostly random in an efficient market. Well, they are. You'd expect active managers to be unable to beat the market on average. Well, they don't beat the market on average. You'd expect fund managers that have done well in the past to not be able to do well in the future. Well, for the most part, they don't. So yeah, market efficiency is a model. It happens to be a pretty good model for reality. And so I think that that's a really good way for investors to think about how they should approach financial markets is to approach them from the perspective of markets being efficient, which means you can't beat the market, which again means it probably makes sense to just invest in low-cost index funds. Or if you want higher expected returns, picking stocks probably isn't the way to do it. It's at least not the reliable way to do it. If you want higher expected returns, concentrating in stocks with higher expected returns because they're riskier probably makes a lot of sense. And there's a ton of good research on that, like stocks with robust profitability and low prices. I mean, it sounds like something Warren Buffett would say, but there's a ton of good academic research backing this up. Those types of stocks have higher expected returns. You don't need to pick individual stocks, so you can buy index funds that have exposure to value stocks with robust profitability. So can the market be both efficient and irrational at the same time? There's been a ton of research starting really in, I guess, the mid-70s or 80s on asset pricing and, and differences in expected returns between stocks. And one of the first observations was that smaller companies seem to have higher returns. Now, this is from the perspective of the capital asset pricing model, which is a, a single factor model that relates the expected returns of a stock to their riskiness, to its riskiness relative to the market. That's where you hear about like a high beta stock that's got high exposure to market beta. From that view, from the capital asset pricing model view, small cap stocks were delivering consistently higher average returns than their level of exposure to market risk would predict. At the time, appeared to be evidence that the market was not efficient. It was mispricing small cap stocks. And then similar research came out not long afterward on value stocks, where again, stocks with low prices looked like they had these higher average returns than would be predicted based on their exposure to market risk. That looked like a risk-free profit. It's like the market's mispricing value stocks. Therefore, you can get this risk-free profit by investing in value stocks. And Farman French, Ken French is uh, Eugene Farman's, I guess, research partner. They came out with a paper 
1990, I believe, where they said that the capital asset pricing model is flawed. It's, it's more than just market risk that investors are capitalizing on. And they introduced the Fama French three-factor model, which started and has continued to revolutionize the, the whole field of asset pricing. I mean, factor research is a massive field now, and there, there are hundreds or thousands of documented factors in the academic literature. But the original ones were the market, market risk factor, small size, and value. Now, the reason that I'm going down this tangent to answer your question about the markets being rational or irrational is that Fama and French said small cap and value stocks have higher expected returns because they're riskier than the market. Everyone's like, okay, cool. But then this thing called behavioral economics or behavioral finance developed into an actual field of research with real theories backed by empirical data. And that field of research has, has shown that there are or there could be behavioral or, or, or irrational explanations for these differences in, in pricing. Like value stocks is a is a great example where they might have higher expected returns because they're riskier, but they might have higher expected returns because, or they might have higher demonstrated returns because investors systematically misprice them. They systematically overvalue growth stocks and undervalue value stocks, which results in higher expected returns for value stocks. That's an irrational pricing story to explain the empirical data that everybody agrees on the empirical data. You ask Eugene Fama, Nobel Prize in Economics for the rational markets, or Richard Thaler. Nobel Prize in Economics for Behavioral Errors. You ask them about the empirical data. Do we observe that value stocks outperform the market? Yes. Nobody's going to dis- disagree on that. But there's a, a, a lot of academic debate on why we observe that. Is it because prices are rational and risk-based? Or is, it because, or is it because investors are irrational and they make these consistent pricing errors that result in differences in expected returns? So can the market be both efficient and irrational? I mean, I guess it depends how you, depends how you want to view it. How would you explain all of these concepts that we're talking about and these different dynamics? How would you explain what happens with, and we're recording this early March 2020, how would you explain different things like what recently happened with Tesla skyrocketing or Beyond Meat or different IPOs that have just had what some would consider absurd returns you know, very early on, and even stocks that have been beaten down for no great reason? How would you explain those different dynamics? When you see a story like Tesla, it's really hard to discount the, the irrational behavioral mispricing story where investors bid up the price because they, were, they had irrationally high expectations or they were, they were enticed by the momentum of the stock or whatever, but an irrational reason to bid the price up. It, it's really hard to discount that when you see an anecdote like Tesla. But you know, if you ask Eugene Fama for the efficient markets explanation, he would just say that an investor's expectations changed. And you can argue whether that's rational or not, but he would say, well, their, their expectations for future cash flows or, or their perceived risk or both changed. And those things can both change rapidly. People sometimes say, well, the market can't be efficient because it swings, it swings so violently. But again, what would Fama say? I mean, the, the in, investor's perception of risk can change very quickly and that can cause market prices to swing very quickly. That doesn't make the market inefficient or even irrational. Do you think the increase in technology in the financial markets has led to a more efficient market overall? Probably. I mean, I talked to earlier today, I spoke with um, Greg Zuckerman, who just wrote the book, The Man Who Solved the Market, about Jim Simons and Renaissance Technologies, which was a fantastic book. But Greg, he's a Wall Street journalist, Wall Street Journal journalist, and he covers all, all the, you know, the big hedge fund managers and, and covers all sorts of big trades. But he, he mentioned when, when we were speaking that 31% of trades are done by quant shops today. And you think about Renaissance Technologies specifically, 
like I don't know if you, how well you know the story, but it's it's a collection of like literally the smartest people in the world managed by one of the smartest man- mathematicians in history. And through some combination of their own genius and maybe a little bit of luck, they are able to build this algorithmic quantitative trading model that has been able to produce 66% per year returns for the last 30 years, which is crazy. But you could argue that people that smart finding little inefficiencies in the market that they can exploit is just making the market more efficient for everybody else. And I mean, you think about Renaissance Technologies, their medallion fund is the specific fund that's done so well. And they've capped the size of the fund. It's at $10 billion and they won't take any, any new money. They kicked out all of the external investors. It's only employees of the fund that are able to invest in it. They distribute all of the gains every year to keep the fund at $10 billion. And the reason is there are only so many of these trades to, to exploit. So, I mean, if you take that view, then it, it, it would suggest that the market, <laughs> if there are consistent inefficiencies in the market, there's a limit to how many there are. And Renaissance Technologies is already mopping them up. In general, I think I think high frequency trading, uh, algorithmic trading, quant shops. Like you look at AQR or Alpha Architect that I mentioned earlier, they're using quantitative models to really invest the way that what used to be that the greatest investors used to invest. Like how does Warren Buffett invest? Well, there's a paper from AQR in 2015, maybe called titled uh, Buffett's Alpha. I think they looked at based on what we know today about asset pricing, could we take that information and explain Buffett's returns? And the answer was yes. And the next step in that question is, can we use this information to systematically recreate Buffett's performance historically? Now, of course, this is, this is using perfect foresight because we have all the information now, but they, they were able to do that with a systematic approach to investing, not, not Buffett's genius, but systematically recreate it. If people are able to create models like that, that can exploit what, if any, market inefficiencies exist, then yeah, I, I would say that, that that type of investing is definitely making markets more efficient. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. 
The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit, and this is a topic that we generally talk about over on our real estate investing show, but it's one that a lot of people in the stock investing community, and we also talk about personal finance here on the show as well, are interested in. And I often get asked about the costs of renting a home versus buying a home. And I know you've discussed this specific topic and you've called it the 5% rule. So what are the pros and cons of renting or buying a home? How should we be calculating the financial payoffs or risks of owning a home? Well, I think that there are two very different questions in there. The, the, benefits, the benefits of home ownership are probably feeling good about it. Maybe stability, but I would, I would probably argue against, argue against that. Feeling good is the best reason I could give for, for owning a home. Uh, maybe if you can if you can buy in a market before it it takes off in price, but I mean that's just like anything that's really hard to do, especially consistently. Like in Canada, we have two markets, Vancouver and Toronto, that that have become I, I want to say overvalued, but that that wouldn't be an efficient markets approach. <laughs> they they've become very expensive relative to incomes in those cities. If you bought there ten years ago, you made a ton of money. That's an argument for buying, but that's also luck. You can't repeat that outcome, at least not consistently. When you buy, you also take on risk, like I just mentioned, prices going up. In another Canadian example, we've had cities in Western Canada, like uh, like in, in the province of Alberta, the cities there have had massive price declines. And if you happen to have bought a home there five years ago or something like that, you've lost a ton of value. So just as much as there's upside to buying, there's, there's also potential downside. And that's obviously amplified by leverage, which most people are using when they buy a home. Now, another benefit of buying a home though, <laughs> is access to cheap, cheap debt, cheap leverage. Leverage statistically is a really good thing for young investors to use. Most people don't use it to invest in stocks. If they're going to use it to invest in a home, that that alone might make buying a home a worthwhile a worthwhile decision. On the renting side, I mean, you get flexibility. You you don't have to worry about home maintenance. You don't take on price risk, which might be a good thing or a bad thing. Like in the two examples we just talked about, I I personally rent. I I really like not having to worry about anything. You know, like I'll make a list once a quarter of stuff that needs to be fixed and it gets fixed like a week later. I have a good landlord. And I don't know. Some people say that you can have bad landlords renting, which is true. One of the things people talk about with renting, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately, is stability. Like you can get kicked out. In, in Canada, in Ontario, the province that I live in, Toronto specifically, there have been all, all of these situations where landlords use the, the landlord tenant laws to kick people out so they can get higher rents because prices and rents have gone up so much. And renters get worried about that. I personally have addressed that problem by signing longer term leases, which puts a little bit more risk on me, but it also gives me and my family stability where we can rent. We don't have to worry about anything, including being kicked out because in, in Ontario specifically, and this is, it's important to know the, the tenancy laws in, in your state or province. Um, but for me, I cannot be kicked out while I'm in a lease. It's only at the end of the lease. So anyway, 
that would some people would say is a downside of renting instability, but I think that there are ways that you can work you can work around that. Now, in making this decision, people always say, well, it's an emotional decision and you shouldn't make it based on the finances. I, I don't think that's true. And the, the YouTube video I made on this that you mentioned, I see I, I look at pretty much all the comments that I get on my YouTube channel. I don't respond to them because there there are too many, but I read all of them and there's it's so divisive on the rent versus buy channel. It's like Roughly 50% of people think it's the stupidest thing ever that I'm saying renting is a reasonable financial decision. And roughly 50% of people are saying how terrible their experience was owning a home and how they're never buying again. It's, 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 it's kind of funny. But I think that the first step, and I think this is true with any financial decision, is understanding from a, and maybe this is the engineer in me, uh, but understanding from a quantitative perspective what the trade-offs are in making the decision. Like it, purely in terms, of, in terms of the effect on your wealth. What is the impact of choosing to rent versus buy? And this is where I came up with that five percent rule that you that you mentioned, where I I said that when you own a home, well, I'll, I'll back up. When you rent, rent is an unrecoverable cost. You pay money for rent, and you get a place to live, and you get nothing else in return. And that's really obvious. And so people feel sad about that when they rent. That they're throwing money away. They're paying their landlord's mortgage, which is a total fallacy. I mean, it's not because you probably are, but that being a bad thing, I think is a fallacy. So the the reason that that's a fallacy is that when you look at an owner, they similarly have unrecoverable costs. Just people don't tend to think about them as much for, for whatever reason. But as an owner, even if you've paid off your mortgage, say you've got no debt, you bought the house in cash, which would diminish the value of buying a home because cheap leverage is one of the benefits. But anyway, say you bought the house in cash, you still have property taxes, you still have maintenance costs. And again, these are going to vary by city and state and province and whatever, country even probably. Property taxes, you've got maintenance costs. And then the big one that people don't think about is that you've got the cost of capital. If you buy a house cash, or if you put a down payment on a house, that's money that you can no longer invest in stocks. Me as a renter, I pay my rent, but I've got all my capital available to invest in in stocks. And I can use margin to borrow to invest if I want to. I don't do that though. But yeah, so based on that, when, when, you, when you do the math, which I've done in a spreadsheet, it's, it's in a Google Doc. You can share it with your listeners if you want to. But it, it comes out to be that if, you can, if you're looking at two potential homes, if you can rent for 5% or less of the value of a home that you would otherwise buy, so if it's a $500,000 home, for example, and the 5% comes from 1% property tax, and this is for Ontario, but it's, I think it's a pretty good estimate overall. 1% for property taxes, 1% for maintenance costs, and I use 3% for the cost of capital. And that's based on the historical real estate returns globally, which have been about 1% above inflation versus the returns for stocks. Ignoring taxes on the assumption that people have room in their tax-free accounts to use, which again, if, if that's not true, the 5% rule is a, not a rule, really, it's a, it's a model. So you might have to make adjustments. Anyway, so if you can rent for 5% of the value or less, renting is an equivalent financial decision. Now, that's important because knowing that, you can overlay the financial portion on, on, the, on the emotional preference, but at least you have the knowledge of the financial piece. I think in so many cases, people make the decision to buy just because they think buying is a good idea in general, or because they don't want to pay their landlord's mortgage, which again is, is flawed thinking. But if people start in the footing of renting and owning can be equivalent financial decisions, and the 5% rule is an approximation that you can use to figure out where that breakpoint is, I, I think that puts people on much stronger ground to make an informed decision about how to pay for their housing. It's definitely a very polarizing topic. You have a lot of people on one side that feel very strongly about it. Then you have a lot of people on the other side that feel very strongly about it. As you mentioned, I'm not sure if you're familiar with a personal finance writer by name of Ramit Sethi, but he falls on the same side of the coin as you in terms of he's been a lifelong renter and he thinks that purchasing a home is 
a terrible idea. It's a terrible investment. And then on the other side of the coin, I also had on my other podcast, Mark Ferguson, and he swears that buying a home is a fantastic investment. So it's really interesting to be able to see both sides of the coin. And you know, quite frankly, you both have very good arguments. And I think it really depends on the person and you know, allow them to make the best decision for them. Now, all of what you just said, does that mean you're not a real estate investor and you just stick strictly to the stock market? I did a video a while ago on real estate investing. I should probably refresh it. I think with, with real estate investing, and I know you've got a real estate investing podcast. So I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. But we talked about concentration. We talked about idiosyncratic risk with stocks. I think that this, you, you have the same issue with real estate. The difference is that it's a lot harder to diversify it away. If someone wants to pick five stocks and hope for a good outcome, fine. I don't think that's a good idea. But the trick with stocks is that you can very easily choose not to do that and diversify, not just in your own country, but also globally. With real estate, that's really, really hard to do. And if you are able to do it, like there's a paper I read a while ago showing that to get, well, I guess it's obvious now that I'm thinking about it, but to, to get the returns of the real estate asset class, you have to own real estate at least on every continent to eliminate the or at least reduce the idiosyncratic risk or the country-specific risk. Now, if you have enough capital to do that, great, but you're probably paying property managers at that point, which are taking whatever, 10% of your gross off the, off the top. And so it makes it a lot less attractive. But that's my, the biggest downside, in my opinion, with investing in real estate is that you, you end up with and you can't really get rid of that idiosyncratic risk. Real estate as an asset class, I, I won't deny and I can't deny, has had good returns as a whole. When we talk about global real estate, it's beating the stocks with less volatility going back as far as we have data. But you can get global stock returns easily. You can't get global real estate returns, private real estate returns with the same ease. So I, I, I think it ends up being a speculative investment with an unreliable outcome. But because you're using leverage, if you get returns that are okay, it can still work out really, really well. There's a couple of things I want to dive into there. And the first thing is the cheap capital. I mean, you're absolutely right. I just locked in a 30-year fixed mortgage yesterday for under 3%. That's insane. It's incredible. It's literally free money. And so when it comes to real estate, just the cost of capital is very, very low, which obviously, like you said, can help with the returns. Now, when you talk about this idea of real estate investing and how it may or may not be a great strategy, are you thinking about it mainly from the aspect of real estate appreciation or are you also considering the cash flow? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of investors and specifically myself and you know a lot of people that I talk to, we're doing it so that the cash flow from the property acts as a source of passive income and can replace other sources of income such as W2 income rather than the property doubling in value over the next 2 years like you've seen in Toronto or or San Francisco or things of that nature. So rather we're more conservative in our approach and we're looking for a, an income replacement rather than, you know, an appreciation play. So does that change your philosophy or how do you think about that? I think to, to invest in real estate, you have to expect the net rental yield, the, the income return. I mentioned that historically, real estate has been better than stocks on average, and it has, but that's been roughly 3% capital return and 5% net rental yield. So if you're not getting that, if you're not getting the net rental yield, then it's not even an asset class worth pursuing for the capital return alone. I, I do think that a lot of real estate investors don't necessarily get that. Uh, and we see that in, in Canada here where there've been news articles written about landlords that are taking cash flow losses consistently, basically betting on price appreciation. Now, that's a, that's a tough game to win. But if we tie this back to the idea of the 5% rule and, and deciding to rent or, or buy, if you can find a landlord that's renting their, their properties out at a cash flow loss, I mean, you might end up finding a really, really good deal as a renter. 
On the passive income idea, I mean, yeah, I can see the benefits of having passive income from any source. I, I've, I know dividend investing is different from real estate investing, but I've covered in, in a few of my videos just the separation of income and, and capital, which from a rational perspective, from an irrational perspective or a behavioral perspective, I totally get the attraction. From a rational perspective, there aren't a whole lot of good reasons to separate capital and income returns. Again, on the behavioral side, I totally get it. It's, it's a lot easier to be disciplined when you have passive income. Most people probably aren't going to sell capital to invest in other stuff because it's really hard to think about that. I get the attraction of, of real estate. I don't think that makes it a rational investment though. It's also hard to kind of conceptualize or even just the utility of the capital returns, right? If your stock appreciates in value, that's great. And maybe that is equal to the cash flow you're receiving, but it's not. It's the utility piece. You can't use that. Or I mean, you could. You could sell the stock, cash that out, and then use that to pay for your groceries if you want. Whereas with the cash flow, it's something that hits your bank account and you're actually you know, using that for your day-to-day -day life. So it's really that utility piece, I think, that going back to what you said about behavioral and just the psychology piece of it is what makes it really interesting. And I think that's really what makes all of finance so interesting these days is, is psychology and just the behavioral finance piece of, of everything, whether it's real estate, the stock market, even personal finance. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic these days. Totally. And that's the best argument for like I threw dividend investing in, into this discussion, but that dividend investing is not rational. It leads to a, an under-diversified portfolio it really doesn't make any sense. There's no expected benefit to doing it. But if it keeps you invested and allows you to enjoy your retirement or whatever, how does someone argue with that? Same kind of thing with real estate. Yeah, it's a tough argument to have. As we round off the show, Ben, I'd love to get the number one piece of advice that you'd give to a millennial listening to the show. And it could be personal finance, it could be stock investing, it could be real estate, anything that's going to help a millennial invest their time or money better. I think on investing, one of the most important things that you can do is have, have an investment philosophy. It might even make sense to write it down. When we start talking about these different types of investing, we just talked about real estate investing, we've talked about picking individual stocks, I've mentioned value investing, index funds, there's all these different things out there. The reality is over the long run, I mean, I can say, and I think it's true that index funds are going to give you the most reliable outcome. But if you invest in a reasonably diversified way in any risky asset, you're probably going to get an okay outcome, probably a pretty good outcome. Like investing in stocks, even dividend stocks I mentioned are under-diversified. You're still going to get a pretty good outcome. Where people get into trouble is when they start flip-flopping between different types of investing. If you're a dividend investor because dividend stocks are doing well, and then you get, you know, you get knocked down 20% and decide that now it's real estate and you're chasing returns like that. After tra taxes, transaction costs, uh, losses that you don't recover, I think that can be very detrimental very quickly and, and very slowly over the, over the long term. So if you want to be a real estate investor, great, but stick to it. Likewise, if you want to be an index investor, great, but stick to it. So I think that, that idea of having a philosophy, knowing why you have that philosophy, knowing why you've made that decision, and again, maybe documenting it, maybe keeping a decision journal so that you can always look back on why you're doing this. That's probably one of the most powerful things that, that any investor can, can do. Yeah, I recently had Rick Ferry, who is the leader of the Bulgoheads investing community. And he said the exact same thing. If you pick a strategy, you need to stick with it for almost life. It's one of those things you make a decision and, and you just stick with it. And that's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of people to, to accept, especially in today's world where you see news headlines of you know an individual stock investor who picked, like we talked about Domino's Pizza, who picked it at the bottom and has held it to the top and they quintupled their money right <laughs> over a couple of years. And so you hear things like that, and then you look at your portfolio of the S&P 500 index fund that's returning 7 8 9% per year, and it's FOMO at its best, really. You know, the fear of missing out. 
But I think, like you said, just the most important thing is getting started, get invested, and stick to a strategy that has historically worked and you'll likely do very well over the long term. And we're like my firm, PWL Capital. We we do index investing with a tilt towards small cap and value stocks. And that's a strategy that's been really painful for over a decade now. Like value stocks have not done well relative to growth stocks. And again, it's FOMO and it and it's painful. And we have clients. So there's there's the the, the agency piece where, you know, we have clients asking, why are we doing this? But we know exactly why we're investing in in value stocks. It's it's statistically reliable in the data. It's theoretically sound. Whether we take the behavioral or the risk-based approach, there, there's a good theoretical reason for value stocks to out, outperform over the long term. But yeah, it takes a lot of conviction to stick through this in the times like we're living through. Like value stocks have done relative to growth stocks real, real bad, but we're sticking to it. And I'd say a lot of people listening to the show today are relatively new. Even if you're on the higher end of the millennial spectrum, if you will, you probably missed out on most of the last crash. I mean, all you've done is invest in the last bull market. So you don't really know what it's like to invest in an environment like that where you lose 30-40% of your portfolio in a pretty short period of time. And again, as we're recording this in early March of 2020, the coronavirus is a huge thing right now. The markets are getting beat down. And quite frankly, a lot of the things that I'm reading on Twitter, Facebook, things like that, you can tell they're from investors that have not experienced a market downturn like this. And it's it's a little worrisome as to what's going to happen when things, when the, the next recession does come, when the Fed can't pull those levers to drop interest rates and increase the economy and increase GDP and things of that nature. So it's one of those skills that you're just going to have to learn. You just need to focus on the psychological aspect of it, get invested, stay invested, and research the historical data behind it and understand that as long as you do the right things over the long term, you're going to turn out okay. That's exactly that. That conviction piece comes from doing your research. You will be a confident investor if you know if you know exactly why you're making decisions. If you do things because you're following the crowd or you're listening to your, you know, brother-in-law or whatever, then it's really hard to stick for the decision. But yeah, like you said, if you do your research and you know exactly why you're doing the thing that you're doing, it's a lot harder to get derailed. Yeah, I agree. The conviction piece is so important. That's why you can't just go out and invest blindly in a different strategy or something that you don't know. You need to understand what you're investing in so that you can have the conviction and stick with it. Ben, I've really enjoyed our conversation. We touched on a lot of really great topics. We challenged a lot of norms that I think a lot of people think about. And I think it's turned out to be a great episode. I'm excited for the audience to hear it. Where can the audience go to connect with you further? Uh, Yeah. So I've got my YouTube channel, Common Sense Investing. I've also got a podcast called The Rational Reminder Podcast. We put episodes out every week and that's on iTunes and whatever else podcasts are on. Yeah. Those are the two main platforms that I'm pushing out content on. Awesome. I'll be sure to put a link to those two different resources in the show notes. I'll also get the Google Sheet from Ben so that we can include that in the show notes so you guys can go play around with that as well. And as always, I'll put some books in the show notes about the different topics that we talked about so you can go ahead, read those, dive into the topics more, learn more about it. Ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Robert. I, I really enjoyed our discussion. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.